Well, thank you everyone for being here and for coming for week four of our Visit Sermon Series. Uh, Visit, we're talking about why Sundays are so significant to the Christian church. We've talked through Easter's significance and why it leads us to worship on Sundays. We've talked through the centerpieces of what we do on Sunday, which are the Word and the sacraments. And so today we're going to talk about liturgy. And liturgy is not a word that we use outside of a church setting. Um, I would guess that none of you used that word at all this week. So it's important for us to define what liturgy is before we uh, actually start talking about what it means for our life and the implications from Scripture. Um, The most basic definition of a liturgy is an order of events, maybe a routine or a ritual. Um, So our liturgy is what we do every Sunday consistently, right? We come here, we sing, we uh, start with an invocation, then we confess our sins, confess our faith, read the scriptures, children's sermon, regular sermon, uh, prayers and offerings, and then we leave with a blessing. It's the same kind of structure every single week. But you know, if there's one thing that everyone has an opinion on, regardless of what church you're part of, it's the liturgy. And there are two reasons for that, I think. The first of those is that the Bible does not tell us what our liturgy should look like. Um, There's no Bible verse that says, thou shalt read the scriptures for two minutes after the confession of faith. Or whatever you do, make sure you only have three songs in your worship service. It just doesn't say that. It gives us very general principles. It says things like everything should be done in an orderly fashion, that the means of grace should be honored. But beyond that, there really isn't much that the Bible tells us about how to do our liturgy. And if any of you have had kids, you know that when there's not black and white rules, things tend to get chaotic really quick. And the same thing is true with church. Because the Bible does not give us black and white rules for how to do our liturgy, more often than not, we end up with a chaos of opinions and preferences. But I think there's a more effective reason for why everyone has an opinion about liturgy in church. It's because liturgies are close to our heart. The fact is you have hundreds of liturgies, not just the one you do here. Every routine that you put yourself in is a liturgy, an order of events that sets you on the right path. From something as as simple as waking up in the morning and doing what I hope you all did today, which was shower and brush your teeth, to things as big as how you order your day at work, or how you plan on uh, bringing your children to bed at night. All these things are liturgies. They're orders that make things comfortable. You know, if you read anything uh, in the world of psychology right now about efficiency in the workplace, they will all say you should have schedule, you should make as few decises as possible, waste waste as uh, much of your, uh, as little of your energy on those decisions as possible, and make sure that you prioritize. Make everything into a routine, a schedule, so that it all gets done and you waste as little time figuring out when to do what to do. Uh, Maybe the most famous example of this is uh, Barack Obama. So when he was the president of the United States, he wore the same tie every day because he didn't want to waste any of his brain power deciding what tie to wear. So he made a routine every morning that he would just put on the same tie. He had so many big decisions to make, he didn't want to waste any of his brain energy on that. And we do the same thing, right? Naturally, we kind of just fall into habits, right? These are the routines that we go through in our life. And you know, if you've ever had one of those liturgies broken, that it messes with you, right? If you've ever gone through a major life change, you know how breaking that liturgy can mess with your psyche, your emotions, the way that you deal with other people. And I'll just tell you, I have been struggling through this for the last year, right? Like, new job, moved, married, new child, 
all my liturgies are messed up. I have a hard time, and I try to be a pretty scheduled person, but I have a hard time getting into a set routine where I feel like I do things efficiently because my liturgies have been messed up. Now take this back into a church context. If you grew up with a certain type of liturgy, whether you grew up in a Catholic context or a Reformed Baptist context, you come to a place like this that has a liturgy that's different than both of those, and you get thrown off a little bit. Like, why is it like this? Why don't they do this? Why do they do that? And so we end up with a lot of people having a lot of opinions about liturgy. But I think one thing we have to admit to ourselves before we even go down this path of seeing what the scripture has to say about liturgy is that no liturgy is perfect and none of us think this liturgy is perfect. I don't think any of us would be the one to raise our hand and say, everything about what we do on Sunday, on morning, I am totally on board with, I like it, I wouldn't add a thing. None of us would say that. I wouldn't say that. So let's not come to this conversation trying to get our preference or trying to think that one way is necessarily better than another and just let the scripture speak for itself. Now, like I said, the the Bible doesn't have anything specific to say about how your liturgy is ordered, but what it does give us is principles for how to interact with God. And that's what we're going to get from Romans chapter 10 today. Um, So we're going to get three points from the text These three points, if you have your bulletin and you want to take notes, they are these. The liturgy is going to educate, the liturgy is going to assimilate, and the liturgy is going to vindicate. Uh, So let's read the text from Romans 10. These are the first, uh, sorry, verses 5 to 15 of chapter 10. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is God's word. So, uh, the liturgy educates, point number one. Wax on, wax off. Paint defense. You know what movie I'm quoting? You can say it, it's okay, we're in a new setting. Karate Kid, right? Yeah, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san learning karate, right? Wax on, wax off. Um, Daniel finds Mr. Miyagi, if you haven't seen the movie, he finds Mr. Miyagi and asks him to teach him karate. And so Mr. Miyagi invites Daniel over to his house and immediately puts him to work on household chores, right? Wax the car, paint the fence, sand the floor. If you remember the movie, Daniel gets so irritated with these household activities that eventually he just wants to leave. So he starts to storm out of Mr. Miyagi's property until Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel-san, 
show me, wax on, wax off. And Daniel comes back and mocks him, wax on, wax off. And then Mr. Miyagi says, no, wax on, wax off. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi punches Daniel. And Daniel parries it by waxing on and waxing off. All of a sudden, he realizes this entire time that I've been doing these menial tasks around Mr. Miyagi's yard, I've been learning karate. But before he can have another thought after that, Mr. Miyagi goes crazy on him and starts kicking him and punching him, and he blocks every single attack. What Daniel learned is our first fill-in-the-blank for today if you're taking notes. Commitment to the ordinary leads to the extraordinary. Only after Daniel had learned the motions of sanding the floor, painting the fence, or waxing the car, was he able to do something extraordinary like block all the attacks from Mr. Miyagi. So what does this have to do with the Bible? I think sometimes we we come to worship and we feel like everything at worship is ordinary. It doesn't seem like anything special. We kind of wish that that what we did was a little bit more flashy, a little bit more exciting, a little bit more engaging, but it all feels very ordinary. But that's exactly how God wants it. Did you see what Paul said in the beginning of his text for today? He makes a comparison between the law and the gospel. You remember this, the law are God's demands on you, do this and you will live, and the gospel is the good news that Jesus has done those things in your place, and therefore you are righteous because of him. He makes this comparison. He says the law is like this. He says the, the person who does, uh, lives this way, excuse me, who does these things will live by them. But then he says the gospel is different. The gospel says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven or who will descend to the deep as if you can find Christ there. Are you following his point? He's saying the law, the law says you got to go find God. Go pursue him. Do what you need to. Pull it off. But faith in the gospel says, I don't need to. I already have him. Did you hear how Paul says it? He says, uh, the word is in your mouth and it's in your heart. You already have Jesus. You don't need to ascend to a higher level of existence or a higher level of emotion in order to know God. You don't have to dig deep inside yourself to find Jesus. No, the word is in your mouth. It's in your heart. You believe it. The very fact that you stood up and said what you said in the Apostles' Creed shows that you have Jesus. He is the word made flesh, and those were the words coming out of your mouth. You know, I I occasionally get this criticism uh, by being as a pastor that people say, you know, your your worship is just kind of dull. And to some extent, I I understand. Like, as Lutherans, we come from a culture um, that was more or less just deadpan most of the time. Um, And I wouldn't say anything against us having emotion in worship, but I want people to understand that the foundation of what we do in worship on Sunday is not about our emotions. The foundation is about words. Because think about it, if you have a great experience at a church, just a high-flying moment, you walk out, you can't get the smile off your face, that's awesome, but can you pull it off next week? Can you pull it off for 10 years? And I'm afraid that if that's what's bringing you back to church, you're eventually going to be disappointed. And so we try to focus on what is ordinary. 
Just the words. The words that educate. The words that give us a basis for everything that we do as Christians. I don't know if you've noticed this, but our liturgy is set up to be a teaching tool. To give you a posture towards the rest of your life. Think about it. As you come into church, the first thing that you do is recognize who you are. You say God's name that was given to you at your baptism, right? This is who you are. Which is an important thing to know as you go out into your regular life because Satan is going to constantly be tempting you to believe you're not. You're not good enough for God. You're not his child. His child wouldn't live like that. But you start always by hearing who you are first. And then you realize that as you come into the presence of God, you don't have a right to be there. Because even though you are a child of God, you have not lived an exemplary Christian life this week. And that the first thing you ought to do, like coming into the presence of a king, is humbly say, I don't deserve to be here. You think back to the story of Esther in the Old Testament. She can't come into the king because she knows that if he sees her and she's not announced and not uh, gone through the right channels, he could just kill her. She had to have him mercifully accept her into his presence. And so we do the same thing. We come to God and say, not good, failed, sinful. And then we confess the faith that we believe forgives us of that, right? We believe that Jesus Christ, God the Father's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, etc., etc., because that is what makes it okay for us to be in God's presence. We then realize that our posture towards God should be one where we let him speak first, and so he does, through the scriptures, through the preaching, And then when God is done talking, then we're allowed to talk. And so we pray. We make our requests to God. And then God sends us on our way with a blessing to remind us that as we go out there, we are still loved and valued and watched over in his name. It may seem ordinary, but it's ordinary like waxing on a car or sanding a floor or painting a fence. But what it does is it sets you up for success later. The ordinary leads to the extraordinary. You might not have the euphoric experience that you're looking for right here as you do the ordinary things, but when you walk out into your life and Satan comes against you and you remember who you are, that's an amazing experience. When you remember that that he can't touch you, he can't change who you are, when you come to God and first listen to God instead of coming to him with all your requests and wait for him to speak and set the timbre for the conversation. Your prayers change. They stop being prayers of, God, fix this, why this? And become prayers of thanks and prayers of hope for other people. But you'll learn that by doing the ordinary thing here. The liturgy educates. It educates us on the law and the gospel and how our relationship with God may start ordinary but leads to the extraordinary. So the, uh, the church, excuse me, the, uh, the liturgy educates. Secondly, it assimilates. Um, I know that all, not all of you are sports fans, um, but I know that some of you are. And now having been your pastor for almost a year, I've had the chance to watch sports with a lot of you. And I realized that no two sports fans are alike. I mean, even if they like the same team, the way that they watch sports is very different. 
Some of you are sit on the edge of your chair, yell at the screen type fans. Others of you sit back, put up the footrest, and I don't hear a peep from you the whole game. Some of you like to wear jerseys. Some of you would rather not. Some of you would rather analyze all the plays in the game, and others of you would rather analyze what's on the bar in the kitchen. Different fans watch the game in different ways. But they're all still fans, right? And we know because there are a couple things that true fans always do. And it's different for different teams. It might be standing up at a certain time or yelling a certain thing with everybody else or clapping your hands in a certain pattern or simply just cheering when your team scores. But you know the true fans because they all do the same thing at the same time. Living a Christian life is kind of similar. Even though every one of you is a Christian, you live your Christian lives in different ways. It expresses itself a little bit differently, and that's mostly because you're in different stages of life. Some of you have kids, some don't. Some are married, some are not. Some are white-collar, some are blue-collar. Some have been Christians for a long time, some have been Christians for a short time. It's, it's just different for all of us. Some of the struggles that I go through are not the struggles you go through. Some of the things I feel very successful at in my Christian life are things that you wish you could be successful at, and vice versa. We're all living these different Christian lives, but it's all the Christian life. And so what assimilates us What brings us together and shows us that we are a family of believers despite all our differences is when we do the same thing. When we say the same words. Paul gives us this great verse in the middle of the text, verse 10. He says, It is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. His point is that what's in your heart is what God judges. Do you have faith? That's between you and God. But being part of a community, professing your faith, is also part of the equation. That naturally, if you believe who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you aren't going to express that faith. And you're going to express it with other Christians. And the fact is that liturgy maybe is a little bit weird, but we all still do it, right? Just like there are some things that we do at sporting events that we would never do anywhere else. I don't know when the last time you guys did the wave is. I can tell you the last time I did it was at a Blue Jays game last year. Um, And you might be shocked to know this, but I have not done the wave since because I only do the wave at sporting events. You might do stuff at church that you don't do anywhere else. You might not be a singer, but just sing at church. You might not think it's cool to stand with everybody and recite the same thing together, but you do it at church. You might not be in the habit of regularly confessing your sins, but you do it at church. You might not be comfortable with praying out loud, but you do it at church. Because even though it's uncomfortable, we're all doing it together. And it brings us together. And just like the first time you might be at a sporting event and you see everybody doing a cheer and you have no idea what you're doing and you think, wow, that's kind of weird and uncomfortable, The more you're there, the more you understand. And the more you grow, and the more you grow to love it. You know, I think it's it's hard for us sometimes to realize uh, our next fill in the blank here, um, that assimilation starts with discomfort. We kind of wish that it would just be an easy plug and play for us when it comes to being religious and being at church. We just wish I didn't have to change anything about my life or the way that I act. That would be the most comfortable for us. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is supposed to challenge you, to change you, to mold you and shape you, to teach you things that you didn't believe before. 
And part of that comes from putting yourself in a little bit of an uncomfortable situation. Now, the truth is, just like a sporting event, it's not always uncomfortable. In fact, I heard it described once like this. Um, liturgy is kind of like dancing. When you're learning it, it's really annoying and you step on a lot of toes. But once you know how to dance, it's really fun. Liturgy is kind of the same way. When you come here, you, you think, wow, what is all this stuff? Why are we doing this? Who's talking? Why are we talking? But as you start to figure it out and start to participate in the dance, it makes a little bit more sense and becomes a little bit more enjoyable. So, liturgy educates. Liturgy assimilates. Last one, liturgy vindicates. Paul finishes the text by saying this, How then can they call on the one who they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? So God sets up, uh, through the Apostle Paul, a system, right? He says, if you are going to believe, then you need to hear the good news. Okay, but how are you going to hear the good news if no one tells you? And who's going to tell you unless they're sent to go tell you? And this is where your pastor comes into the equation. I was sent to tell you. I was called specifically by the Holy Spirit to this congregation to tell you. A lot of times people think the pastor's job is just to be the preacher, but it's also to execute the office of the ministry, which includes a lot of different things. It includes baptisms and the Lord's Supper. It also includes preaching you the liturgy. And if you've kind of never thought of the liturgy as a preaching tool, I hope you do when you leave today. Because even when the sermon is bad and the songs are out of tune, the liturgy is still preaching. It's still preaching to you who you are in Christ. Maybe you've never noticed this, but the liturgy is set up like a courtroom. What happens at the beginning of a court scene? The defendant's name is read, just like your name is spoken, the name that God gave you at your baptism. Then the charges are laid, right? And the defendant has the chance to say guilty or not guilty, to which all of you say guilty. But then you also add that you believe that there is a reason that you should not be punished for the crime that you are guilty for. You confess your faith that Jesus Christ died, that he rose again, that he's coming back to judge. Then the case is laid out by the prosecutor and the defense, just like the scriptures are read and preached. And then finally, the judge bangs his gavel and says, this is the judgment. Except for you, it's not a judgment against you. It's the remembrance of a judgment against someone else. Then when Jesus' body and blood is brought to your mouth, you remember that that's when the judgment was paid, when the sentence was executed on a man on a cross, and that you, celebrating in remembrance of that, are free to go. Just like the pastor says, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine on you and be gracious to you, and look on you with favor and give you peace. You're free to go. And whether the sermon is good or the songs are good, the liturgy will constantly preach that to you. You are on trial, and you're guilty. But someone else is taking your punishment in your place, and you are free to go. That's the good news. And that needs to be part of every single worship service we have. Because it could be easy as, for me as a preacher to get a little bit academic about my preaching. 
to always be trying to give you some new insights so you think to yourself, wow, really intelligent thoughts or deep thinking. And that's fine, but that's not what saves. What saves is the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died for you. And if all else fails, the liturgy preaches that to you and vindicates you. Now, I want to give you two final tangential points. First of all, we don't try to be weird with our liturgy, but we're okay when it is. Because we want to realize that what we're doing here is different from what we do everywhere else in our life. It would be easy to try to fit our liturgy into the culture that you understand from the other 167 hours of your week. But we don't want to be a poor excuse for a concert, or a poor excuse for a TED Talk, or a poor excuse for a soup kitchen. We want to be something sacred, something different, something special in your week. And so we do some stuff that's a little weird, and that's on purpose. And also, I think if you, if you have kids who you, you think, man, they're not getting this, they're not understanding it, they think it's boring, maybe it's because they've been watching you and you think it's boring. You know, I think of those sports fans who I've sat with. Most of them who have kids have kids who are also fans of the same team. Why? Because dad or mom sits on the couch and watches the team and cheers for them or brings them to the games, right? You know, there was a, a time in the history of Christianity in this country where we all thought, we just have to change everything. It's the only way we're going to engage the youth. Except that's not how we do any other engagement of youth. The way we've always engaged the youth is by bringing them along with the things that we see to be valuable. And they've learned that value from us. And they've made changes across the, uh, along the way, and that's fine. But we've never engaged a, a next generation by saying, we'll change everything for you. And that's part of the reason why we don't change. We adapt, we adjust, but we still do a form of the liturgy that has been being used for literally hundreds of years. And it's not the same, and that's okay. But we believe what has been working for the church and keeping Christians in the church for hundreds of years can continue to work because it clearly lays out the gospel. I pray that you find that this liturgy has value. It might be different than what you grew up with. It might be different than what you want. But I want you to walk away with one final principle, and that's our last fill-in-the-blank for today. Your liturgy is only as good as the news it tells. And if your liturgy says, we're here just to kind of listen to some music and listen to a guy talk, maybe it's not that good of a liturgy. If your liturgy is communicating, we're all about ceremony and none of this means anything, it's just the motions that we go through, then maybe your liturgy's not that good. And like I said, no liturgy is prescribed for us in Scripture, so we should always be evaluating it. But let's never come to a conversation about liturgy looking for our preference. Let's always look for how it preaches and who it preaches. If we do that, I think we can have a, a better attitude about what happens on Sunday mornings and understand that what we're doing here outside of the sermon is very valuable. God be praised for the tradition of the church that has led us to this point and the adapt adaptation that he has given us um, through the gifts of his people. Amen.